All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. First of all, I'll be at Largo in Los Angeles. That, I just want to uh, make sure we know that. I, you know, it's going to get to a point where everyone in Los Angeles, between Largo and Dynasty Typewriter, will have seen me somewhat. I think, I think at Dynasty, on the 14th, I'm actually going to do some sort of improvisational uh, crowd work show and record it for that. August 14th, is that when it is? Do I even know my own dates? What's my own calendar? Yeah, 14th. Same day, apparently, my window cleaner comes. So look, today I talked to uh, James A. Caster, a comedian who I watched for a minute and stopped watching one time. When his four Netflix specials came out, I, I thought the audacity, the uh, the swagger, the confidence of someone to drop four fucking hours on Netflix at, at the same time. This British kid in his corduroy jacket, I'm not having it. I watched 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. How can this go on for another three hours and 50 minutes? I thought to myself, but then like I kept hearing about him and then he was up in Montreal and then I thought like, well, let me get, get a load of this dude. And then I watched more of it. I didn't watch all four, but I definitely watched a couple and I was taken with his microphone and the mic cord material was pretty great too. Interesting weaving of sort of expanding uh, reality into nonsense and then coming back around to real stuff. And the, uh, the newest one was, uh, was pretty good. There was some power hitting there. He's a very smart guy, very clever guy, and, uh, and courageous guy, really, in terms of material. I was happy to talk to him. But before we get into that, something happened yesterday. Many of you know that I have Sammy and Buster. Buster being the black cat. Sweet cat, smart cat, knows what's up. I think there's a human inside that head. Uh, he might have kidney problems. It's unclear. Don't know how much kidney uh, juice he has. He went into renal failure when he was very young. Doesn't matter for the story. I also have Sammy, the very uh, sweet Sammy. Little sweet Sammy, the orange and white tabby. He's a little little tough guy, uh, uh, Sammy is. He's, he's, a, he's a squat cat. Buster's a lanky cat. Sammy's a stout little guy. He's a very nice guy, kind of dumb. Buster is a little, a little nervous, very smart. Anyway, doesn't matter. What happened was, got back to the house the other day, day before yesterday, and I heard something out back. And Kit and I go out back, and you know, I'm like, what's that noise? And she goes, oh my God. And there was a cat underneath the, the stairway. This, this cat runs out from underneath the, the backyard staircase. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And she goes, oh no. There's more. There's kittens. So there's like three kittens in there. And they weren't there. I would have noticed this. I noticed this cat a couple of days ago running across the street. I'm like, whose fucking cat is that? Well, I don't know whose it is, but now there's three kittens under my staircase with this cat freaking out. So Kit feeds it. And then uh, this morning I wake up and uh, there's only just one kitten by itself under there. She had fucking split and moved them. So I took the one kitten out tiny little th thing put it in a box with a nice uh, blankie and kit took it over to the humane society to feed it and get it on its way to uh, being domesticated living the life got out but where's the other thing i thought well she must have went somewhere else took the other three two probably planning on getting that other guy I feel bad but there's the right thing to do and turns out she i looked at the first place i looked i found her under the deck down the, at the end of the deck i stuck my head under there it's only about a half a foot 
of a space where you can look under there into the dark. And there she was just glaring at me. I mean, I could see a, a kitten. So I fed her. She ate it. And then uh, she split. And I went out there with Kit. And we looked under there. We could at least make out one kitten. There was a gray one, a black one. And then the one I got, gray and white. But we didn't know what to do. And apparently, because I can't get at those kittens now, we can't trap her and get the kitten, kittens because it's not that easy. Now we've got to wait a couple weeks feeding her. But then I run into the lady from next door who I just met. And she's carrying her dog. And she's like, oh, yeah, I got to tell you something. I, there was a cat with four kittens on, in my carport. And I saw her. We moved, I'm like, yeah, she's under my deck. And she said there were four kittens. I'm like, four? When I saw them yes, the, the next day, there was three. How'd she lose a kitten? I don't know. I don't, maybe the count is weird. Maybe she got three under there. I, all I know is I got one out. And, and, uh, and now I, got, I know there's at least two kittens under my deck and a mother that I'm feeding and need to feed for a couple weeks. Why me? Why me? Do I have to take that cat? Is that, I, feel, I feel an almost immediate attachment to these cats, this little guy that I took out of there, little gray and white guy. I don't, you don't even know what they are. They're just like, <laughs> their eyes are blue. Their ears are weird. None of them are going to be heinous. They're all going to be cute. But am I, do I just have an emotional attachment to the spectrum of kittenness starting at week two, week three? I mean, I can't assume that I have a particular attraction to this particular. <coughs> but you think you do. Like Sammy, I was a little nervous about because Sammy had this perpetually worried face and it was not it was not comforting and it was not cute. It was always like sort of what's the matter, man? What? It's not that bad. Just he looked worried all the time when he was like four weeks old, five weeks old, six weeks old, just total worry face constantly. Blue eyes, worried faced. And then it went away. I don't know if I'm going to end up with this cat. But I believe we did the right thing. I believe we did the right thing. James A. Caster uh, has a book coming out later this year. James A. Caster's Guide to Quitting Social Media. He's also announcing tour dates today. So you can go to his website, jamesacaster.com for details on tickets. And we did this in a hotel room. And it got good. Yeah, I never know what's going to happen. This is the one thing about what I do. I do not know how it's going to go because I'm relying on a conversation unfolding. And it did. Here is me and James A. Caster unfolding, unpacking, and uh, stacking. me how often I do this. I, not as often as I used to because exactly the type of panic I'm in right now. Yeah. The fury and the panic yeah. of having no control over what's about to happen outside within minutes. Was that always there at the beginning? Or did you, oh, were you also like quite excited about the podcast and it oh, yeah, growing yeah. Yeah. and so it was overriding oh, yeah. all of that? But it was more of an urgency that we have to deliver a yeah. new episode every Monday and Thursday yeah. no matter what. And that time that I did it at an airport... I didn't know if I was going to make it home because there was a problem with the flights and I was supposed to record that day for the next day, but I had equipment. Yeah. So I thought like, well, fuck it. And I went to a, one of the lounges and I said, I need a conference room. I paid like a couple hundred dollars just to sit there and do a fucking intro because I didn't want, you know, there was an urgency to it. Yeah. And I'm starting to realize as I get older, I don't know where you're at, that uh, I'm probably totally irrelevant in the big picture. Well, 
for in, what, in general in life <laughs> yeah yeah podcasters yeah <laughs> but i i don't like that's that's the new struggle yeah is like uh, does it fucking matter what i'm doing yeah i, I also just how quickly I'm very. I just just discovered how just fragile I am uh, mentally with that. How quickly I go to that thought. Yeah. I pulled my back for the first time ever this week. Um, uh, doing what? Just uh, I bent down a. I, I was putting some uh, rubbish in a bin. In yeah. A skip. Yeah. Dropped some of it. Bent yeah. down to pick it up. Yeah. And then- <laughs> absolutely just killed my back. Yeah. And uh, you know, over the last few days, having to deal with it. The amount of times I thought, do I even matter <laughs> in my head? Of like, oh, it's it's over now. It's over now. You've pulled your back. You're not going to live forever. I, uh, that's it. Well, that okay. So that's the I'm not going to live forever thing. Yeah. The thing that I think is is fucking my head up is like I'm 58, so you're you're 20 years younger than me. Whatever. Yeah. It's just that like you know I've done a lot of work. I put a lot out there. And, but there's a never-ending appetite for the work. Mm-hmm. There's no the, there's no pause where anyone's going to sort of look back at the great work. You know, like that that era seems to be over. Yeah, you know, like there there were guys that you grew up with that I grew up with, and you kind of like, look at the great work they did. But now it's just sort of like we just need more. Just yeah. we just need more shit. And uh, and I'm, I'm there's some part of my brain that's exhausted. But you seem to be able to generate plenty of shit. Yeah, kind of, but like, but also like, you know, just do, doing things that I'm very, if, if I'm enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And any time I've said yes to something that, yeah. uh, you know, I just saw pound signs or yeah. whatever, yeah, then that's when it's bad. And I, and I realize I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said yes to this and I'm making something that's bad or... Uh. Or make it something that's not going to get anywhere. I, I've been in the situation of waiting to see if something gets the green light and gets commissioned, and I'm hoping it doesn't yeah. because I know that if I have to do this, the dread it'll be bad. It'll be bad, and I'll be making the bad thing. And, yeah. uh, for, and then for however long, for, yeah, for as long as it, <laughs> as long as the bad thing goes on for. Yeah, well, yeah. A couple questions, like I had because, like, I remember when you're how many? What did you do? Twelve specials for Netflix? <laughs> four, four, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember like you know because there's a whole generation of comics that I don't know I don't know where they come from I, and I don't know a lot of the the British guys mm-hmm. but um but like I just remember when it came out it's like this guy just did four he dropped four and I'm like what the fuck is that who does that right so I immediately resentful yes. and uh, I'm like who's <laughs> who's this young dude who's just gonna drop four specials so I remember I started to watch one and I was like I, I'm just not gonna do it out of, yeah. out of spite. <laughs> Out of spite, I'm not going to do it. And so, but then like, I I realized that you'd done all this other stuff. So I went back and then I saw that clip that was going around about the, you know, the Christians and the the trancing, which is like an area where I I like to uh, talk about. But uh, Mm -hmm. so I went back and I watched some of the specials. And like the first thing I got is that where'd you get that mic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had had to cord. Yeah. So that was, uh, there's one of the shows, because all all four of those shows was shows that I did over quite a big period of time and then filmed them all at once but okay, there was like yeah, six, right. six years of touring them and then doing the next one mm-hmm. and I think one of them um, it just happened that like I had a red stool that the venue had for the month in Edinburgh uh, so I was using this red stool anyway and then uh, the backdrop I, I wanted a backdrop last minute yeah, because uh, the stage was too deep and it looked mad yeah. so they were like we've got this red curtain and I thought this looks stupid I've got a red curtain and a red stool yeah. um, and then so I just lent into it and all the red clothes I had in my suitcase I wore for the 
show as well for the for the one in edinburgh yeah yeah Yeah. so then when it came to doing that show on tour i think my tour manager just suggested it and just went do you want us to get you a mic that is also the same color as everything else and i just said yes to it and uh managed to and and then just like just yeah i don't know if you've had it but you you just don't even look for stuff and you find it so i had to buy a new mic cord and then found one that matched um the rest of the, you know, it was a yellow one that matched yeah, the, the, the pattern nice. on my tie. And then I had to get new shoelaces and walked into a shop and it was like the exact same as my mic cord shoelaces, which no one has ever noticed, obviously, who's watched the specials. But uh, yeah, and then, and then it just, when, when, then when filming the specials, I was like, let's have that for all four of them and try yeah. and do the color thing. Well, I, I noticed it right away because I'm like, I, that, this is the only thing we work with. I'm very <laughs> hung up on microphones. I'll, I only use ones with wires. I yeah. won't use one with no wire because it bothers me. Yeah. Yep. I feel untethered. They're usually too fat. They don't fit into a mic stand properly. Yeah. So so when I saw that mic, I started looking for colored mics. I'm like, where the fuck? What kind of mic is that? Where would he get that mic? Yeah. Someone court- had to spray it. There's someone guy did it. it. Yeah, sprayed it for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I realized. After yeah. I couldn't find one. <laughs> <laughs> that that you had it was a it was a set deck job yeah somebody from props did it yeah yeah someone had done it and um uh, i've got it still somewhere at home i'm very f- fond of it obviously but do you like, take it with you when you no for, for the last tour i just used whatever mic i had in, in the venue and then when we filmed it um i i you worked with the same production company you filmed the netflix ones yeah. and uh they are even more meticulous over detail than I am. So they were like, you can't just use a normal mic because you used the spray one for the last one. So they got a mic and sprayed it the colours of that show oh, and okay. gave it to myself. But I just used it for the, the taping. Right. Um, so you're now you're the guy that they're like, we got to spray a mic. That's it. Now, if I ever do a show that's a normal mic, everyone's going to go, oh, he's slipping in stand. I'm not going to bother watching that based on the photos because he's clearly not caring well, I, anymore. I, I, I'm very specific about mics. You get You sort of get attached to things. <laughs> You know, I don't bring them. I don't. I'm not one of those guys that brings a mic to the gig. Yeah. But I, if it's a weird mic, I'm like, where, where'd you even get this? Just <laughs> sure. get a 58. I mean, yeah. wait, there's one mic. Why, yeah. why? Why fuck with that? I don't know. So, but I don't know about a lot about what's going on with the. Like, I had a bad experience at Edinburgh. Okay. Years ago, and I I ran into the woman who put me through it last night. Mm-hmm. The gilded balloon lady. What's her name? Karen. Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I bumped into her the other day. <laughs> she, it wasn't her fault. Yeah. I, I didn't know of course. The, the, the way it worked. Yeah. Like, I, I would, I, my wife had just left me. Mm-hmm. It was like 2007, maybe. And she brought me over on a double bill with Kirk Fox, which I didn't yeah. realize, like, already, out of the gate, strike against you. <laughs> double bill means these guys are green. Uh-huh. They don't have full shows. And they're Americans. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. So right away, I had no idea. Uh, so, but it was produced, so I didn't need to fly her, but no one came. I was there for a fucking month and you know, I'm maxing out at like 22 people and, uh, and I had just been left and the guy I was working with was annoying me (laughs) and we were living together and during the month I was there, his mother died. Oh God. Yeah. And I thought, well, this will open up the time for me. I can, you know, he'll go home. I'll do. (laughs) Is it first fault? Is that your first fault? Yeah. Yeah. Straight to that. No, no, no. No, I felt bad because I was like, what are you yeah. going to do? Because yeah. I just assumed you'd probably go home. He's like, no, I'm going to write it out. So like sure. now I'm dealing with a, a slightly sadder guy that I'm living with. Yeah. And I'm I'm in the middle of a separation. So uh-huh. it was just, and we're doing a show every night for nine people. It was fucking devastating. Awful. And then you go, I don't know if you have this problem too. Like it's just not enough about me generally at any festival. 
Okay. Yeah. Like I go to festivals. People are like, it's great. You get to see people. All it does is remind me how many fucking comics there are. Yeah. And how, again, how little I truly matter in the big picture. You grew up in festival culture, really. Kind of, yeah. Like when I started stand up, um, I wasn't that aware of Edinburgh. Yeah. But people said to me straight away, like, you need to go. And, and all my friends were going, who I was yeah. like, all my new friends are in comedy. And I went and like, but yeah, the first Edinburgh I went to, you know, it was, it was last minute decision. Yeah. And I lived in Kettering, uh, in Northamptonshire, like in the middle of England. And yeah. I didn't live in London. And I got a 12 hour coach to get there because I, uh, I couldn't afford to get the trains. Yeah. So this very long coach journey and I camped uh, it's, uh, outside of the festival for two weeks. Um, in, in the wilderness? Yeah, like in a little campsite that was in a bowl-shaped field that was like, and, on, and it was torrential rain for the full two weeks. So on night one, my tent just got washed away and, and all of my belongings got soaked and flooded. And that was like night one of two weeks. And I didn't have any gigs booked. Uh, I, I was just going to go and try and get on bills yeah. and turn up and ask to get on, um, you know. Can you do that? Is that? Yeah. But like, but they have to be like free entry, mixed bill gigs that yeah. do different lineups every day. Right. And I would just show up, ask to be on. Most of the time, in the first couple of days, they'd tell me, we can get you on tomorrow and put my name down. And it was. And by the, by the end of that two weeks, I was doing six gigs a day. And I was, I'd been doing comedy since January and it was August. And it was by far the most invaluable two weeks of my entire career still. It was like really, you know, I found my first routine that actually repeatedly would work during that two weeks. Interesting, um, yeah. And... Uh, learned a lot about oh maybe this is who i am as a comic but but it was you know pretty brutal and you d definitely felt like um yeah the, on, on the grand scale of things with this festival i'm absolutely nothing because i've just started and sure. uh yeah i have i have a gift of feeling that way throughout my sure. career you can always far find can ways of feeling like it yeah yeah it's it's always possible but that's it so you were doing comedy how long when you took that on so it's like yes, six, well, seven months, something like that. And what was the, what was the, what were you doing before? I was uh, in bands. So I played the drums in a series of bands with my mates. Uh, so are you a good drummer? I was. Uh, I used to teach the drums, and like that was like uh, what I did after school. I really taught the drums. I worked in a kitchen part time, and but I wanted to be in a band. Like I was in a band with some friends. I didn't didn't go to university, and we just were like, we're gonna be this we're going to change the world with our music and it's, it's going to be like that you believed it we really believed we were going to reinvent in, yeah. everything oh good. like it and was really lofty ambitions now we were our only fans as well no one liked us it was went very badly at gigs and <laughs> who uh, were you modeling yourself after we who, what was the what, what was the, like you know we're going to do it like who yeah i think we wanted to be like a more kind of uh clean uh, like version of Frank Zappa, but with the vocals of the Beach Boys. Wow! Uh, and we were not talented enough, Mark. And there were only two of us, so it was very hard to achieve that. <laughs> A clean version of Frank Zappa with yeah. vocals like the Beach Boys. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, What's funny is like you know, like you, those are both you know relatively like I imagine the, the Beach Boys you aspire to. Were the the kind of Brian Wilson driven deep, yeah, you know, like the it wasn't just the pop Beach Boys. It was like right. It was so. constantly every band practice would have a lunch break at some point, and every lunch break, my friend Graham, who was also in the band, would put on uh, the 
either the pet sounds right. or uh, recording sessions. Yeah. So it was just Brian Wilson talking to starting the wrecking crew, stopping it, telling them, let's turn that up, let's try that again, doing yeah. it again. Yeah. Uh, or it was like listening to a documentary about Smile or something like that. So it was all, it was that so, every, every day. So two entirely esoteric American <laughs> musical talents in yeah. a way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it was, but there's a certain type of people that like just, I can't listen to Brian Wilson. It's too sad. For you me. can't at all. Not really. But so it didn't yeah. work out. It didn't work years. out. Um, but, and when it stopped, I was like, I just, I, I've been trying to be in bands since I was 13. I learned the drums that, I started learning the drums when I was seven. When I was 13 at school, yeah. I was trying to make every single one of my friends be in bands with me, trying to make people care about it. By the end of that band, I was 22 and I didn't have the energy yeah, yeah. to try and find more people again, try and make them care again. So I started doing stand-up because I didn't have any qualifications, didn't have like any backup plan, but I, I knew I liked being on stage and I liked um, traveling around and doing gigs and seeing different parts of the uk so what so what what about your folks you have brothers and sisters yeah i got younger brother younger sister and, uh and were they supportive of the whole uh, yeah they all were well the thing is that i'd done one or two stand-up gigs while being in the band still just to see if i could do it for like because i was a big fan of stand-up and just wanted to do it for the fun of it and my sister had been to one of the gigs and kind of came away going i think you should do that yeah. <laughs> uh, and my parents i'm probably one of the only comics whose parents said you know, a safer bet might be that you do stand up because, like, they were like, you know, your sister says she saw you at that gig, uh, so maybe do that. Because yeah. before I cared about stand up and just did gigs every now and again, I just yeah. always had a good gig because I didn't, I didn't care about it. Right. So I go on stage and just mess around. I didn't care how good it was or how, and so it would go quite well. Yeah. And I thought in my very naive head, I was like, oh, so that means it's easy. So I'll just do that and it'll be easy. And yeah. then as soon as I started trying to do it properly, every gig went badly and was very, very difficult because I was, you know, I was going, well, if I'm going to do this, yeah. if I'm going from being in this band that was going to change the world, I need yeah. to now do something that has at least some artistic merit. So let's think about the routines you really want to do and what you really want to say on stage. And of course, I wasn't good enough to do any of those uh, yet. So it was fully... But that was, but that was sort of that was the intention. You, I mean, because like, who like, when you didn't have any other jobs really though. When I was doing stand up, I was like uh, working in kitchens still. Oh yeah, uh, washing up and not, uh, not teaching drums. No, uh, well, I think no. I was teaching drums for the first year of maybe doing stand up, and then I moved to London and I was a classroom assistant in the daytime at a school for autistic children. What's that? A cl- what's that mean? Classroom assistant. Uh, so just like. Uh, not the teacher, but the person who's like just helping out the kids yeah, yeah. who need extra help. And, oh, wow. and how do you get a that. gig like that? Uh, I had weirdly, so classroom assistant, you don't need any, you can just apply. Oh. But the fact that I taught kids the drums and I'd done some respite work with uh, a kid who had uh, Down syndrome, so I'd worked with people with special needs before, so it will it like kind of made it that okay, you can probably do this job. Yeah, and uh, so I did that for nine months, and luck, and at the end of that. And I really enjoyed it. Like I didn't, I, I was doing it because I was like, well, that gives me my evenings free to sure. do gigs. And that was the main reason I was, you know, I was moving to London just to do gigs. There's no point doing a job that's going to get in the way of that. So I'll work and then do gigs in the evening. Yeah. But I really got invested in it and really, uh, there's so much problem solving in it. Um, Working with the autistic kids. Yeah. Like you got, you got to learn what each kid, you know, what, what triggers them, what will calm them down, what they, you know, what right, they like, they right, don't, like how they right. communicate. 
And that would be really fascinating and um, enriching each day. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, there's something that really grounds you about, like, doing real service work right you know what i mean like mm -hmm. when you're really working with people that, that have help and it's not just as simple as like you know well my problems aren't that big or whatever but it, it almost it makes you understand what it what it feels like to what you're supposed to feel like as a good person right yeah well the whole thing is an exercise in empathy if you're working with people with autism that's right because you have to think in any situation right what in this room is potentially going to make them feel uneasy yeah and uh and how am i going to deal with that so you're you know having to constantly think how do these seven individuals all feel in this environment yeah and and it would i definitely think for that time when i was working there i was a lot more um kind of forgiving with most people like just outside of work yeah. as well of like if they were behaving like a jerk yeah 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 i'll be like yeah, but it's probably because of all these factors, and right, uh, right, right, and not just because they're just right. a bad person. Sure. Yeah, you know, and uh, although you know, work could be quite intense. I was working with one kid one on one who wasn't autistic. He had emotional behavior difficulties. Yeah. He was misdiagnosed and put in this school. Yeah. Uh, and it would be quite difficult all day long. And then I would go and do a gig in the evening. And if anyone heckled me, I had to not respond because i knew unload. if i respond it's going to be everything that i wanted to say to that kid in the day just unleashed on this one person who was just wanted to join in, <laughs> in there were, well that's like that attitude of like uh, uh, uh this sort of british attitude about hackers they, they just want to join in like that's like that's yeah. not good either no <laughs> none of it's good <laughs> yeah i would have probably chosen to unload on the heckler yeah, well, I've done some gigs where I've done that and really, really regret. I, I don't know how you feel when you choose to let them have it. But more often than not, I I go away going, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. And I really regret saying the things to that person. And I know a lot of the time now, comedy, well, comedians are painted, and it's like quite a small minority of comedians, but they're very vocal, as being like, I don't give a shit how the audience feels. I'm going to say whatever. And this is... And, uh, I think most comedians just come away going, I don't think I should have said that. Should I have said that thing? I think I've hurt that person's feelings. Oh, no. <laughs> even, oh. even even the, the real revolutionaries? Like, yeah, yeah. Man. I think they were. Yeah, I've, I've, I've made some very bad choices because not unlike, I know that I have a, a, a sort of eternal well of, of resentment yeah. and emotional, weird emotional neediness that underneath, I guess most of us are very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So depending on how the set's going, like if the whole thing's not going well and somebody yeah. you know speaks up, it, it's it's going to go badly for yeah. everybody. And you can't win because there's that line where you're dealing with them, and you know that there it's you, you have a very delicate balance to have the rest of the people still with you. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you cross that, as soon as the audience is going like, oh, for God's sake, leave that guy alone, and then yeah. the whole thing's fucked. I did a thing once. I saw a documentary once where a group of uh, chimps in the jungle <laughs> yeah. chased another chimp down and killed it. Oh, that's that, the, the Jane Goodall thing? Maybe it was a Jane Goodall thing. All I remember is that the chimps are kind of walking away at one point and there's the dead body of the yeah, chimp on yeah, the floor. Yeah, yeah. And another chimp just, it's like the last chimp walking away decides to double back, go back, and just gives one punch to the corpse and then continues to walk away. And there's, that image sometimes at gigs yeah. you feel that line where you've gone 
I've just doubled back and punched the corpse in front of everybody. <laughs> and that was, and that's too much for everyone. Like that person's already that done. Was it, yeah. And I've gone, I've moved on. And everyone's thought, oh, we're moving on now. And then I've gone, yeah, and by the way, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and, and, and it's gone back again. And it's yeah. like, why? I'm trying, that is my main, I don't know about you, but like during mm. lockdown, I was really realised, uh, it's my longest amount of time not doing stand-up right. since Me I started too. doing Me stand-up. Me too. And, I really liked it and I didn't yeah. miss stand-up at all. I had and, the same experience. Yeah. During lockdowns, I was very much like, oh, I would happily never do it again. It's like, a relief. I, it's I, a relief. I, don't, I don't feel like I need to. I feel like, as you say, I feel healthier. Yeah. I feel like my body is not being put through as much every evening. Um, and the brain, though, because like, I, I don't know where you generate, but I mean, you, you seem more able to to generate from you, you know to to sort of like you know your your craft is very good and you, you know you're I think there's something about the the way long like guys in in Europe do long form comedy yeah I think you because of Edinburgh and the in these that there's you see it as a show mm-hmm. and you you at least are going to tie it back around somehow and you know I picked that up later in my career but you can sort of go off on things that uh you know i don't i'm not my brain's not going to think of like my it needs to be existentially important to me yeah and in like and and i'm not sure entertainment was always my intention Uh but (laughs) you seem to have found peace with you know finding relatively mundane things that you can make into to heighten and i wish i had i had that skill i don't know that i do well those netflix shows were that but then the show I did after, where that clip is from that you mentioned no, earlier. I watched, I watched the first half of that. Yeah. So that's more... Yeah. The, the end of that half is uh, yeah. just whimsical jokes. But the first half of that is just true stories. And then the second half is all true stories and very personal. And I feel that well, now I've stepped over into that, it feels weird being on stage and not doing that. Uh, being personal yeah or just for the audience it feels weird to be like why are you saying you're an undercover cop again or whatever because like actually we know you now um so that that makes it well i i well well that's interesting so first go back to lockdown like mm. you you felt good you felt comfortable and you felt but also didn't it give your brain a rest yeah gave and like just so much less anxiety and um less self-doubt i i, I get very um, I doubt myself so much with Me this too, and then my man. confidence gets very low very yeah, quickly yeah, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily matter what and, and also people are very nice people who are correct in their behavior and what they say to me are uh, saying like yeah we'll try and go like but this is going on and this is going on people like this oh yeah 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 and I know they're right yeah but I also know that how I'm feeling isn't a logical it's not a logical feeling for whatever reason uh, I feel like what I am doing, whatever my stand-up is or whatever, is very uh, throwaway, trite. Um, this other thing that I've seen someone else do is high art. It's beautiful. It's perfect. I just watched it. I think it's so That's good. That's what I'm doing right now. You know, yeah. Like, I, I watched a film the other day that just made me go, oh, I'm never going <laughs> to. I'm never going to do that. I, I, what, and, uh, what, what film? It was. I mean, it's a film I've seen a lot, but it was. It was I watched Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. Yeah, and I went because I just felt like watching it again. Yeah. I was like, oh, I watch. Yeah, you know, this will be fun. Yeah, right. And then it was just putting myself. Through, I was like, oh, every scene in this, <laughs> it's perfect, and the way he shot it, and the 
oh, this is a matter like, oh, I just think about actually the concept of it. He's, you know, I take it for granted, but he's done this whole yeah, yeah. fictitious story, but based around like the Nazis and the, uh, the Second World War. Yeah. This is actually such a big achievement. And uh, the final shot is, ama- is this perfect. And the, <laughs> yeah. And just down to like BJ Novak's little smirk at the end and yeah. then it cuts and he's like, fuck it, like, so good. Yeah. And then like that pause and going, oh, I'm never gonna, <laughs> never gonna do that and no, no one, no one cares about my fucking Netflix specials or like, <laughs> like, like, yeah. like no one cares about that and, and uh, that, so many things I've done have been bad. And, that's layered for me because I have actually a personal kind of insecure driven resentment of bj novak so (laughs) my experience with that would have been like there's two reasons why (laughs) like how the fuck did that kid get so successful and i'm never going to make a movie you know yeah sure that 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 doesn't help (laughs) but but i but see but i try to deal with that all the time like right now like i'm in that right now Mm -hmm. and i've been doing this a long time and i don't understand it but you understand and, and I think you're right that it's a part of the brain that's sort of this useless appendage. It's like this self-loathing, uh, this hammer that we hit ourselves with, even though there's, given our, our experience and, and what we've created already, why, why, why even have that anymore? Mm. You know, you've done like nine shows or however many hours, but still is there this thing, it's like, I don't know how to do this, yeah. and I'm going to judge myself against somebody who's doing something that I haven't even set out to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even. But then I think when it's the useless appendage thing, so I'll convince myself sometimes that it's useful. So there's that thing of like, it's like you're both characters in Whiplash. I, so you're, you're both of them. You're, so like you're both of them. Yeah. And and the whole thing is like the whole debate of that film of like you know is that person does that help having someone yell at you that you're fucking awful all the time and that you're useless you're a piece of shit that does that drive you to greatness and you can't achieve that unless you got so sometimes I'm like well the reason I work very hard is because I feel insecure and like I'm not good enough right so I'm constantly trying to be good enough all the right. time yeah um but then but there's no t- there's there's no cap to that no there's no so cap. To it. Right, so so you can't win that one. You can't win, and also like it, it's not gonna. There are more important things. So it's it's trying to like uh, that last tour I did with uh, with that the, the latest special. Yeah. By the end of it, I I just hated being on stage and I hated doing stand up and it made me feel bad about myself. You hated the repetition. No, I just hated. Um, it, it was the most I'd ever hardest I'd ever worked on a show. It was two hours long. Uh, I got way outside of my comfort zone doing personal stuff and talking about my mental health when before I just hid behind this thing of saying I was doing jury service or yeah. something fake. And the work in progress shows have gone really well because work in progress, you're always in front of very dedicated comedy nerds who yeah. like to see the, see the process. Yeah. So even though your material isn't that great yet, they don't, they give you quite generous with their laughter. And then for me, every time, every time I then tour the show, yeah. when it's finished, yeah. they're to the people who are more casual comedy fans. They might have seen you on one or two things. Right. And they would turn up. And on the last tour I did, all those people turned up and they heckled from the start. They heckled if I was talking about, especially during the mental health bits, they'd heckle with some pretty weird, inappropriate stuff that wasn't very kind. Yes. And, um, and I just started to get very bored of it and very like, why did I put that much? Also, I was tired. I was, I didn't give myself any time off that. Yeah. Year. And when I'm tired, I get very negative. I was like, why did I spend 
you know, over a year honing this show yeah. to then go out and tour it to people who I may as well have just gone out and roasted everyone in the audience and they would have been happy. I could have gone out and been shit and it would have been just as good to them because they don't care. And I felt very much like this, you know, what's the fucking point of this? Like, I, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, but also, though, the the thing that you did as well, and, and I do it as well, is you made yourself vulnerable to a room full of fucking monsters. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, like, you know, there... There's something about like if you're just if you're not doing well with stuff that the only risk is you know making something funny yeah like if you if you've made it a thing where it's like this is a funny bit and you know my emotional risk is only that I'll feel shitty because it didn't get the laughs mm-hmm. you know that rejection that that sort of baseline the job of comedian rejection yeah and however we deal with that but once you start like putting your heart out there. Which you know I do fairly often. Uh, you know you've really got to find a trustworthy bunch, or, or at least that audience. But so, I mean, you have an audience, but you've taken the shift where you're showing more of yourself, and then all of a sudden the audience is sort of like they get uncomfortable because there's they got to hold up their end. Mm-hmm. There's an emotional responsibility to them receiving, uh, you know, your honesty. Yeah, well, and, some of them are like that. Yeah, right. But yeah. The, but then there's always one asshole, and there's yeah. the, and and they are the people that we've not liked our entire life. Yeah, <laughs> but, and, and that's the the problem with that, especially going back to being brutal to hecklers. Yeah, is that you know you go through. You know, you just come in here to Montreal at the airport. Yeah. There's a lot of awful people at the airport who are <laughs> sure. pushing in queues and yeah, yeah. getting right up to the baggage carousel so no one else can see their bags and yeah. just because they want theirs yeah. so Those badly. Yeah. And you hate them all yeah. and you can't say anything to them because you're not that kind of person. You don't want the confrontation. But when you're on stage, they might be in the audience and you can say it. Sure. And it seems like a great thing to do. And then sometimes I realize I've misread that. They weren't that person. And now I've said all that oh. stuff to someone and I feel sure. shitty Always. about it. Yeah, sometimes they're just but, um, drunk or they just have moments. Yeah. It's, you, I, I don't imagine that given where you are in your career and, and is that you're not – you're not getting a lot of those people, the the bad guys, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they yeah. know who you. But They're like, such it was, a minority. But I mean, that's the sort of logic of go, going back to the autistic experience and 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 having a certain amount of empathy for everyone who does asshole things. Mm. Like, I'm I'm I get livid very quickly, and I know it's it's not it's not correct. But I'm I'm also like, you got to find a midway point for yourself in, in that empathy thing because mm-hmm. you can't just walk around you know apologizing for everybody and giving yeah. everyone the the leeway because you know that's how fascism happens yeah so you know like he's not that bad of a guy he's he, you know he just believes what he believes yeah all right but the, but the satisfaction is is limited to you know it's very hard when you're doing that kind of material to to distance yourself from the show itself because you still mm-hmm. have to do it every night and you still got to put yourself out there doing it every night and that there was a new like kind of exhaustion that I hadn't experienced before of yeah. like especially if I went out in the first half and someone would do a kind of dumb heckle in the first ten minutes and the whole audience would laugh at the heckle. I would make a decision in my head of, right, now I'm not doing this routine, this routine, this routine or that routine. Ugh. And I'm doing none of them. And I'm not gonna tell them that because that'd be petulant. I'm not gonna go Oh yeah, guess what? There were four routines that I was going to do, but I don't trust you anymore. So I'm not fucking doing that. Idiot. Yeah, yeah. Fucked it up for everybody. Don't want to do that. So I'm not going to say that to them. But I'd make the decision of, okay, we're going into B material for those bits now that'll be easier on me, and they won't even know because I don't want to tell them that I have suicidal thoughts. Sometimes I don't want to tell them uh, that you know that I had a breakdown in 2017. I I I don't want to talk to them about any of that because. 
I now don't trust them and I don't feel comfortable in that. And so, or sometimes I would, you know, plow ahead and do it anyway. And then they would behave the way that I feared they would behave. And then you're like, okay, great. That was, Trust your instincts. Yeah, right? yeah, I should have known that. But, but but there's also, but then don't you ever do the argument of like, well, that's going to make me tougher. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm not physically and mentally exhausted, yeah. Like on tour, when I'm that tired, yeah. I just kind of go, I think it's, <laughs> I think it will make all of us oh. collectively weaker if I do this. Like, I feel right. I'll be so tired. And I've seen comics, when I started out in stand-up, um, the reason why I was able to quit that job at the school was because Josie Long asked me to support her on tour. Yeah. one of my favourite comics ever. And it was a very big deal to me. And she was doing a show that was like an hour and a half long. And the first half was like, at the time, what she was known for, just like very in-depth and intricately written whimsical routines and yeah. like really delivered in a beautiful way. And then the second half was what was this first time she'd ever dove into politics and yeah. talking about UK politics yeah. and had a lot more like righteous, uh, like anger in it and frustration in it. And it was a real gear shift. And she would do it every night and so, and regardless of if the audience like sometimes the audience were quite clearly uh not there for that or yeah. they, they weren't really like a, a very comedy audience and they just come to the gig and you'd think well i would bail on that second half now because yeah. i would be scared but she'd do it every single time and i remember watching it as a new comedian and every time being really blown away by the fact she would do it no matter what. Right. And then after that, she did two shows that were just pure political shows and you saw the fruits of that. You saw, oh, that's why she did that because now she can nail that style. She, she did it in the hardest environments and now she's got two exactly. more shows that right. are that good. Um, but I will end up in those situations now and go, oh, no, I'll just eject and, and do something else because I have. I, sometimes I will push through and do that, you know, go down the harder route. But yeah. Yeah, I, I I find that like as I get older though, and I think always like you know whatever I'm ejecting to yeah. is just a little less. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. It's the, I don't have like you know. Well, I used to have like more cat material, so like, <laughs> like, like, like I, I, there were points in certain acts where because I go through these levels. Like now I'm talking about you know the the death of my partner. Yeah, you know over COVID, and like there's a moment where I'm like. After I've just talked about my father's dementia, I'm like, let's do the real stuff. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so, sure. but like, but I think the weight of that is in what you're talking about is just that it's, it's, it's a true emotional risk mm -hmm. and, and, and the exhaustion you're going to feel and what it does to, you know, people who we have a thing in common where whether it's insecurity or, 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 uh, uh, you know, depression or whatever that it, that insecurity or, or feeling that you're not being received uh, for doing that stuff, it, it'll trigger a, a shift in, in the way we see everything for however long that happens. Yeah. And I, and I think ultimately it can stick for longer and then you have to deconstruct it to get back to just a fucking regular day. Well, it's the thing that, you know, since deciding to do stand up again. Yeah. After the, pan uh, not after the pandemic, after lockdowns. Yeah. But like is... I knew that's still going to be there. Yeah. And has, especially having had those two years away from it and really appreciate You needed the break. Yeah, needed the break, but going like, oh, without it, I feel better. So if I'm going to go back to it, number one on the list yeah. of things that I'm got, I've got to do is combat that and figure that out. I've got to figure out how not to end up in that 
night after night again. But do you think like, do you, I guess my question is, and not unlike what I felt during the pandemic, which is maybe I'm better, uh-huh. but do you question your intentions of sharing that? I mean, because like what I've grown to believe is that, you know, with my podcast and with what I talk about on stage, that there are people that get an awful lot out of it in Mm. the sense that they feel less alone. When you talk about suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. when you talk about your breakdown, when you talk about like whether it's substance abuse or whatever, whether I Mm -hmm. do or or, or my suicidal thoughts or my brain, because I used to do. What was that? I used to do a bit about how, like, you know, I, I think about suicide all the time, but not because I want to kill myself. I just feel better knowing I can if I have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 I, and, and that's a way for me to compartmentalize mm-hmm. suicide ideation because I have it all the fucking time. Yeah, yeah. What's your experience with it? Uh, it's, it, it, it was throwaway, kind of like not very serious stuff, quite flippant stuff. And then in 2017, when like, and I'm still kind of figuring out what really happened to me at the start of that year. Cause like some, you know, there was like little things that were like, well not little things, but like, you know, on the surface things that were short term triggers for having a, a quote unquote breakdown. But like, I know that my head just wasn't in a good place over years of probably just like not going to therapy, not ever really doing the work yeah. and looking after myself. Yeah. And, what the, how'd the breakdown manifest? Just just straight into uh, just pure self-hatred at the beginning. Really not liking myself. Yeah. I remember being in... So I went to do some gigs in New York for yeah. the first time yeah. in at the start of 2017. And that was at peak, really not feeling good about myself. I remember walking around New York and for the first time thinking like, there's this bridge there and there's that <laughs> oh, place there. Oh, yeah, so yeah, and yeah. and then going and then really catching myself and being like, Okay, fuck, you need to Right sort this out. Because so that was like, so you that was coming from a place for me, my suicidal ideation is usually from massive anxiety. Yeah. And it's just sort of like it would be easier. You know, like, you know, I just want to know that I, I can do that to, to yeah, but like, I, I don't really want to do it. But it sounds like yeah. you were like, oh. Like, it was the first time that yeah. I was like, like that. But yeah. then, but then very quickly, it was like, right, as soon as I get home, yeah. I'm finding a therapist right. Im- immediately. Right. Like, because like, you know, I, and I had it before, I had a breakup in like 2013. And after that, I was like, that was when I started going to the gym. So like I had right. that and I was like, right, we need to do something. You can't sit around feeling sad. We have to do so. Right. so when I'm feeling like that, it's just that in the past, I've always let it get that bad. Now yeah. I don't let it get that bad. I try and keep on top of things just in my day to day. But in those two instances, it was like, here's something I've never done. And now I feel really low. So I'm going to start going to the gym all the time. Yeah. And then the second time was like, no, I'm going to start going to therapy because this has caught up with me. Um, and it's helped? Massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you're finding but, that most of it... You know, you can, you you can, most of it is um, cognitive and not chemical. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it can be one or the other and like you're just trying to work through things on a case by case. Like I haven't had um, those kind of thoughts since 2017 really. Actually, no, that's not true. I have, I have had moments where I've maybe, I haven't had as serious a thing. That was like, my brain i was like idly almost planning stuff in my head and i don't think i would have done it yeah 
but um, it's never been, hasn't got to that level before. Yeah. But now, you know, I'll have like every other week therapy sessions. So if I do have a thought that is like that. Yeah. In any way. Yeah. Uh, then break it down. Like, right. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Figure out why it was there. What, why, why were we talking about that? Uh, what, why I was thinking about it. Um, and, you know, yeah, for a lot of it, it can be like, I think there's a lot of stuff tied up in, and maybe sometimes you can look at like why we do stand up and, and figure out if there's some self-worth things going on there or there's yeah, some, like, how much you like yourself. And, and, and but it, kind of, so it wavers though. Like, you know, it's like you were talking about before. Like, you know, I was working on this material. I've been working on this hour and a half or whatever it is for mm. a long time. And I, you know, I was thinking like, this is going really well. It's all coming together. Yeah. And then like, I'll just watch somebody do something much easier. Yeah. And, and I'll think like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. I mean, like what, it could be so easy. Yeah. But like anytime I've even broached that, like I, I get bored, mm-hmm. and and I feel like I'm 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 being disingenuous, mm. you know. Yeah, but then also like uh, you know I watch comedians who are doing something that I might think oh that's easier or that's um you know, yeah. and then and you think oh, I bet they just like oh, they they just don't seem to care yeah and have the same stresses but then you have a car journey with one of those comics <laughs> they're either, yeah and they're like. Oh, I don't get good reviews because people don't yeah. consider what I do to be art. Yeah. I'd always go, oh, no, we're all yeah. doing that to ourselves. And so, yeah, a lot of us, that. except for the ones that, like, there are guys in America, and I'm sure there are mm-hmm. guys that where you just realize, like, they're just getting away with something. Sure. And they're making a lot of fucking money, yeah. and they don't give a fuck. Yeah. They're just going, you know, don't, they don't, they're not trying to do art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's shallow shit, but yeah. they're really good at it. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, that's the problem. There's a skill set with uh, of being an entertainer, mm-hmm. especially a comedian. That like, if you're just a guy that sort of like wants to get away with it, you know, which is yeah. like, if you think about why a lot of people get into these jobs, whether they be musician or comic, it's easier to get girls or not work. Really, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That there, it's a rare thing uh, for, uh, in a way, for a comic. You know, they'll pay lip service to Richard Pryor, Bill Hicks, or whoever. You mm-hmm. know, uh, 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 Stuart Lee. Yeah. You, you know, but. You know, clearly, you know, whatever that influence might have been, they've they've journeyed far away from that. Sure. You know, but but it's about intent. And it sounds like the pressure you put on yourself and as I did, too, because like I'm a a cultured guy or I like or I aspire to having an impact, you know, on on a a lasting or at least a deeper level Mm -hmm. is that there was an art to it. Like what made you think that way? I mean, the music, it sounds like you were well on your way, that you decided who your heroes were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, real obsession early on with classic albums. And, uh, like, I just loved... Just, like, there's something about an album that has resonated through generations and means that much to people. And you listen to it and feel like you're... It's it's something communal with all those people who ever listened to it, and and there's these magical moments that have been caught, especially when it's music. Yeah, and there's you know I love all the stories about that bit was an accident and that bit was you know they yeah, got yeah. that sound from doing this and it was so yeah it could have been so fleeting and and they were lucky to capture it, all that stuff and and there was just something life affirming and. Uh, I don't know, just sort of magical about those things. And then I, I, I wanted... That's for what music, most. Yeah, for music. And, yeah. I, and that's what I wanted if I was you know, in a band. I wanted to make sure. an album that would be perfect. And, and every track is yeah. is uh, amazing. And the whole thing works as a journey. And then, I, you know, 
I would also get that way about films and TV shows yeah. and uh, you know the the very few books that I've read. Uh, but like you know, and then we're doing stand up at the beginning. It was just to to do it and figure it out and, and, and let's try and learn this and get better at it. But definitely, what I wanted to do from the time I started doing stand up was solo shows, and I wanted to do hour long solo shows and go to the Edinburgh Festival and do an hour just me and i wasn't very interested in doing a 20 minute spot yeah at a club right and um and that's not and i understand like when i listen to comics like you've you got a comedy store t-shirt on and when i listen to comics like talk about those kind of venues and the legacy yeah and the stories yeah. and the people there and i love it and i and i think like sure oh yeah you know th- those moments are incredibly special and that is a craft in and of, of itself and there's so much there, but I just wasn't naturally. Naturally, all I was thinking was, well, we're all trying to write an hour, right? We're all trying to well, do that's right. the, these well, solo shows. Right. Well, the own. difference is that, like, I think in America, you want to do an hour so you can headline in a general sense. Right. right. That, like, it was about that first hour. How do you get to the first hour so you can do the job? Yeah. Uh, of headliner. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the the benefit of the that sort of Edinburgh sensibility is that you know the job is like I got to get an hour solo show. Mm-hmm. So I can get the attention and then tour the solo show. Yes. Right. Yeah. And like, but also it's like Edinburgh, the first day of Edinburgh, especially if you're a new comic, it's so exciting. If you've got a solo show on there, because the first day, suddenly it doesn't matter what has been going on the last year. Right. Everyone is at the starting line at the same point. And I hate to like illustrate it like it's a race or it's a competition, but it feels like I could have, I could be the talk of this festival and no one knows who I am right now. But by the end, right, like everyone could be going to see my show. Yeah. And, and it is just based on the quality of if I really work hard and I make this show as good as possible is how I thought in my head. And I know that's not always true. And there might be comedians listening to this who are like, I have taken incredibly honed shows to Edinburgh and everyone ignored me. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is luck involved and there can be bad luck with venues and times and all that stuff. But And also who the hell knows what makes people like people? Who knows? Yeah. But I definitely I would I would start working on my show in September, yeah, and then take it to Edinburgh in August, and the whole year would be working on the show. And I do I have a lot of bad club sets, and I would with do bits and pieces with bits and pieces and try new material out, yeah. no matter what the gig was, right? And um, for the sole intention of of putting, you'd have to try yeah, well, it piecemeal, right? You'd have to yeah. say like this chunk, and then I'm going to go. Yeah, this bit's not working at the minute. Right. Every time I do a work in progress, this 20 isn't working. But you never just get a theater and, and work it as an hour or improvise? Yeah. Oh. But then, like, when I was, you know, most of my diary at that point, when I was starting out, was still 20-minute sets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I, I'm quite badly paid 20-minute sets. So, I thought, I'm not being, being paid much, so I yeah. may as well get something out of this that means that like, I get to go away and, like, you know, right. I, I've got, I, I've, that bit's better. I've solved that problem because I don't want there to be... A uh, ten-minute lull in the show where the material's not as good. Right. Now that didn't mean that there wasn't those moments in the show where sure. the time we get into Edinburgh. But in my head, that's what I was like. I really yeah. don't ignore that bit and go, ah, that's yeah, that's fine. That that's not as good as the rest of it. The rest of it's good, you know. And so, and then, you know, I'd have really <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, you know, I do gigs abroad. I'm mean, going to Bahrain to do a bunch of gigs with some comics when I was writing the Undercover Cop show. Yeah, and inexplicably in front of a bunch of British expats in a rugby club 
choosing to go out and say I was an undercover cop and of course just absolutely eating shit for the whole set yeah. and coming off like well they were never going to that was you, you were never going to get anything out of that that was stupid but in my head I was like all I want to do at the minute is crack this undercover cop bit so I'm not going to bother doing yeah. anything else right. no, no, I, I don't necessarily have that attitude now but like definitely back then I was like what counts is there's that month in the year where I can really go and um get people talking a little bit yeah right in that in but it, but in a way it seems that in that model of the the european models like that's also how you're going to make your living for the year a good yeah. chunk of it and also I, I don't i i don't enjoy in terms of enjoying it we're talking about you know how much we don't enjoy it sometimes but also equally i love it i love stand-up oh, yeah. when you i get, love doing stand-up i love writing thing. it and developing yeah. it and the only time the main thing that makes me love it is work doing the work and so like if i'm not or making the, or it, making the work work yeah right right yeah, yeah. And, and, and just actually feeling like i've improved yeah this is going better yeah and so that was how I would enjoy gigs as well because yeah. I knew that the most enthusiastic I'd ever be after a gig is when I'd solved a problem or got a new bit and yeah. it worked and yeah. then that was why that was what got me excited about stand-up in the first place was, right was but that when you do but like when you're doing like the, uh, the, your commitment to to the undercover cup it was that you knew that was going to be the framework of the whole hour kind of I didn't at the start oh, yeah. like it, it was just um stick with the it was trying to just follow the thing that you whatever it is inside you you want to do that you think that's funny for some reason it's not working now <laughs> yeah, but trust that it's funny yeah. so like in those netflix shows that the i think the last routine in it in the fourth show is me with a i've got a wooden duck and i hold it at the audience i've got my back to them i'm doing a very long monologue and um that was actually my second edinburgh show because that show's made of a bunch of little bits from past shows and my first edinburgh show was just a like you know often it's just the best of for most new newcomers you just do yeah here's my best material and you kind of hate it by the end because yeah. you're very sick of all the stuff and i want to do something different i remember doing a gig with that duck and uh a, t- a 10 minute spot and trying to find what was funny about the duck yeah and all i knew was that i'd stolen this duck from a pub and i wanted to do something with it on stage and yeah. i didn't know what it was and i was trying to riff about it and talk about it and i did a thing about i feel guilty about stealing it i can't look it in the eyes and i turned my back so i wasn't looking at the duck and only the audience were looking at the duck and it was a silence and no one was laughing yeah but my friend david trent uh, who's a comedian was on the bill and i came off and, I, and it was incredibly helpful he, did, he just he kind of said that and then he kind of mimed holding the duck at the audience and looking away from him he went that's funny and it just really helped yeah because i was like yeah that is f- and no one was laughing even right. even you weren't laughing david right but like but there's something in that and it is f- funny yeah, yeah and it was a very very helpful moment of going like okay every show now whatever the thing it, you have that feeling about just do that so the undercover cop thing was just like there's something funny about telling them i'm, I'm an undercover cop yeah and it wasn't going well from the start yeah because it was just gonna be a routine about just I'm an undercover cop and one little routine and then move on to some other stuff because that's all my shows have been before that was bitty bits Uh and um, eventually it was stumbling along just carry on saying it for the whole thing and And actually it doesn't have to be a routine right do you write but like do you write on stage do you yeah I mean that's sort of the way I do it but so you don't write it all out no no and like you know I've considered like recently since like starting up again and going like maybe you should go back to because I used to write stuff out 
And my second Edinburgh show, uh, which is mainly what that fourth Netflix yeah. show is made of, yeah. I sat down and wrote it all. And it was... Also, it was like, for whatever reason, that year, that was the easiest thing for me to do. And I just found I'd sit down and get so much done. I was like, well, this is how I work now. I'm sit down and write everything. And this is great. And then my show after that, I tried to do that. And it was like, it was just hellish sitting there and trying to think of stuff. And suddenly I couldn't. Yeah. And I hated that show. And Which one? Uh, it wasn't on the, it was like some of the routines made it into the fourth Netflix show. But uh, it was a show where I mainly spent the majority of it defending Yoko Ono for the whole show. And that hasn't ended up anywhere you won't oh, see that oh, anywhere. So, on, oh, I see. So it's in Edinburgh. But is it be, what, my, third, it? my third show in Edinburgh. Okay. But, but, um, but also, like, I don't know. I, I don't, I've never, like, I'll write out things. I mean, I've got, you know, like, you know, pages and pages of shit. Yeah. But it looks like that. Yes. And, and, you know, it, it's helpful, but, but I, I don't abide by it. There, like, there's some part of me that, you know, once I see it on paper, it's sort of dead. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. If it's on paper and I remember it and I say it out loud on stage, it yeah. sounds like I'm reciting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not communicating with them. Right. And so much of it is I right. have to be actually communicating with the people in the right. room. Right, leave the opening for, you know, something to happen. And, yeah. And it, yeah, I, I, I imagine it probably, you're saying that you wrote out a lot of the stuff that was the heavy, the show that you, you took the biggest emotional risks. No, so that one wasn't written out. Yeah, you no, can't, right? That, that one was just... you don't even know if you can say it. <laughs> work in progress, not yeah. wanting to do that show in the first place. Wanting to do a show that was about the best year of my life instead. Because I was... I just, you know, I'd had this whole thing. Yeah, so I'd yeah. had this whole thing of, well, that's the worst year of my life, what I've just had, and I hated it. So then I thought, well, obviously don't tell them that on stage, because that's not what you do. As a, you, know, you, you don't do that in your yeah. comedy. So let's go out and do a show about the best year of your life, and then maybe at the end you can reveal that you only wrote this show because you've recently had the worst year of life or whatever. Sure. And I would go on work in progress shows and try and talk about the best year of my life. Um, and I would start talking about a happy memory and I'd very quickly, the jokes I was adding on stage or improvising on stage were about negative stuff about the present. Yeah. And that was, and they just resonated with it more because they could tell that's where I genuinely was. And then I started talking about the stuff that had happened. And, uh, and at the early gigs where that went well, it was the most I'd ever enjoyed stand-up. And I was suddenly like, oh, this is like a whole new thing and it's really exciting. The honesty of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you <laughs> in, then you try and intentionally do that show. And then you have the, the gigs where they you were, do an hour yeah. and they're just really upset by it. And you go, <laughs> I don't think I should have told them any of that. And, uh, Who do that, you think you know. upset though? Well, I mean, one guy in the front row, I, I, I really, he, you know, the show genuinely ended with me holding a crying audience member while the audience just filed out in silence. And it was like, Holy I'd said, shit. this is at the end of the, that special. Yeah. I'd said something I was talking about. How, I got to watch it. I'm such an idiot. I, gotta no watch worries, but I was talking about getting gaslit by my agent and this guy had just had a similar experience with a, a family member. And, um, I was basically not. I was not finding uh, what was funny about the routine that night. So I was just telling them the story. Yeah. And I was struggling to find a joke. And he said, he's on the front row and he said, it's it's really hard, isn't it? And I thought he meant comedy. Yeah. Because obviously defensive and I was right. like, what? Yeah. So <laughs> like, it's working progress. I'm just trying to, he went, no, I mean, this, this that kind of situation you're talking about is really hard. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. And then he started saying, I've been through something similar and then burst into tears. 
and then like I just instinctively was like oh, give the guy a hug because I don't really know I don't know and yeah. then you're like should I be doing this I don't know and then uh, I, I, we kind of went oh, do you know what everyone that's just <laughs> it's there's another show got to start here in a second and I just think we're best off we're not going to recover <laughs> I'm not going to find a big closer after this <laughs> I think we should just all go yeah. and I'll stay and talk to this man for a while um, but stuff like that made me kind of go okay you you know I don't want to do that to people every night. So I have to find a way of talking about this that doesn't do that to someone. Um, but Right. But that's like um, interesting because it's not like people were disappointed. It was just that like you, you didn't know if you could uh, uh, hold your side of the emotional interaction. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'm like... Because like I'm doing... I'm talking about the death of a loved one. Sure. And I'm talking about stuff. and I And I can feel... But, like, for me, I guess it is a matter of recovery. And I think you probably could recover from it. Mm. And that, you know, the only way to do that is to you sort of, you know, kind of take them in and then, you know, kind of ease them out. So the overall experience becomes mm. sort of emotionally nuanced with, you know, like laughing and, and some sort of laughing, crying, and then laughing. Mm-hmm. But you want to make sure the crying is laughing, crying. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so much of it is... if. If they want, uh, making them want what you're about to do, yeah. And um, I think with that show, I was in work in progress. Is they didn't necessarily come for that sort of stuff, and I just suddenly do that. I guess. Yeah. Um, but how are you going to know? You make a change. You can't tell people like you know in the promotion. You can't be like, "This is not what you expect. Yeah. It's much different. You might not like it. Come yeah. on down." But I had to rewrite it so that it to make them want it to find a middle. You give place. them moments in it. Where and you, you think about that a lot. Yeah, given moments that kind of gives them the option, if we could go down yeah. that road, we could go down that road, and then uh. having them go, letting them realize that that road is more interesting, and then doing that right. thing. Right, right. So but, like, but just building it so you can go weave in and out. Having it in there in the materials, not literally offering it up to them the choice, but like having having moments in the storytelling that makes them go oh the, yeah that yeah. that would be good actually you kind of sneak it and in like with you like with what you're doing at the minute like you know they're i presume they already know yeah that's right everything before you sure you, so like they're going to be thinking if you if you tried to do a show now that wasn't about that well that's what i thought you yeah. know like i tell them right away like the whole premise of the bit i'm working on is like i thought about other options but i'm a guy who talks about himself and i thought like maybe you know i do this whole bit about like maybe a serious one person show with a jewish theme mm-hmm. you know like mark maron's Kaddish, a prayer for the dead you know yeah. and i build that out and like i know people who walk out of that show saying like definitely wasn't funny yeah, but yeah. You know, i'm happy he did it he seemed to work through something and then, <laughs> and then i do a riff on like maybe a ted talk but ultimately mm-hmm. You know, I talk about it, and and as it begins, it's not it's not essentially funny, mm-hmm. but but it does get get funnier once I can establish that you know I went through this horrible pain. Everybody's been in grief before, and it's very hard to deal with, and you can't control it. And and most people don't really know what to do with it. Yeah, uh, with the people around you. But the revelation is, you know, most people don't have to do anything but witness it, but stand there sometimes you know you nothing's going to make you feel better Mm -hmm. but if i say you know basically the premise of that bit that one piece is that i got tired of crying in front of strangers but you know they just stand there and you realize like you know when you're done crying you're like that was enough yeah (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah but 
but yeah, they know that. But but I'm also operating on the premise, which I I think that I I don't haven't really heard you talk about because I you're very conscious of of taking care of your audience or at least presenting something that they're going to want to see, which I don't think about as much. Mm-hmm. But but I I lean more on the premise of that you know these feelings are common and yeah. and and you know they're not feelings that many people talk about whether mm-hmm. they are grief or depression or all that but they're very common mm-hmm. and I imagine there's a layer of resistance just in in, in a British way <laughs> yeah yeah right that it, it, I don't know how true that is because I don't live there but there's this idea that 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 British people don't access that emotional dialogue well there's different stuff of like you know. We're we're definitely more repressed, not like so uh, repressed that it's um, like crazy, right? But um, but there are certain things like in that show, like you know, when I did that show in America, I had a whole bit about my therapist behaving inappropriately with me, yeah, and everyone in the audience already knew what the lines are with therapy, yeah, and what lines you shouldn't cross. Sure. So when I did that routine in America, right it would get so many more reactions oh, yeah. all over the place, line after line, because they were like, they already saw, oh, she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't yeah, have said, said sure. that stuff. And so it was really fun. Yeah. And then I'd do it in the UK and was like, okay, this is a different routine now. Because a lot of people in this audience don't know what the lines are. Or they don't want to admit. And that that person shouldn't have done that. Right. Shouldn't have said that. So I kind of have to rewrite it and change it for, for this. Explain it a little more. Yeah. Or just like, you know, I, I tried some stuff where I'd make fun of them for the fact that British people never go to therapy. But then like, it didn't really suit the show at that point in time. And also, so much of that show was a tightrope walk deliberately yeah. of like, you know, I, I, doing routines where I could be out of order to people and and but then not being and manage, managing to walk that yeah. line with it so it seemed a shame to get to the end and just have a jab at the audience for not going to therapy when it's um, right. there's a lot of problems in the UK of like you know uh, waiting lists for therapy people will not be able to afford it and you don't want to yeah, just tell the sure, audience sure. You, know, you should be all going when they can't all go when you've just done this show where you've tried to be as mindful as possible right. yeah. <laughs> um, so there was that as well like you know that's, that's right. not hold their hand too much for all of this and just and what about like because like i know in the in the last one there's you know there is politics and we do have a sort of an issue that i think you addressed in in, i think what you were doing was essentially a character for a minute or some extension of you yeah yeah but a character that lives within somehow yeah but there is sort of a a a, a tribalization of of a way of thinking Mm -hmm. that's happening you know both in comedy and and in politics that is, you know, problematic and, mm-hmm. and fascistic, and and I don't, I don't think a, a, a lot of the comics who are towing that line realize how easily kind of co-opted they are by fascists. Sure, and you know, and, and it's it's a real, it's fucking a problem. Yeah, in that you know, there these this group of people that thinks they're somehow championing you know, uh, speech, mm-hmm. um, are, are really sort of, you know, trying to dictate what comedy is. And a lot of the more people of, of your ilk or people who are doing something that they see as more creative and sensitive and, and, and tolerant or, or at least, uh, empathetic, uh, are sort of, you know, just being bullied by virtue of the existence of this momentum. Yeah. It is. I mean, I don't know what, what, what's it like in, in the States at the minute with that, well, it's just like general. there, there is no like 
there's this idea that's sort of like of anti-wokeness yeah that you know, i don't even know really what that means other than a lack of tolerance you mm-hmm. know a, a, a lack of faith in democracy uh a lack of um of the the need to be empathetic or, mm-hmm. or to see that you know yeah i get it there was a time where everybody was sort of on the same page culturally where you could say things like you know words are just words but mm-hmm. in a world where everything is fragmented and small bubbles are existing to nourish and maintain communities everything is 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 sort of you know relative to some sort of assault and and can be i think um you know kind of integrated and 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 talked about but but ultimately look man you know People don't say, you know, uh, uh, Oriental. They don't say, mm-hmm. you know, you know. There's no reason you can't evolve past tranny, and mm-hmm. you know, like, there's people have been complaining like that since the beginning of yeah. entertainment. But I think in a in a in a in an emotional and cultural and an economic bubble economy where everybody lives in their own little worlds, mm-hmm. and 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 there's no that the only approach to creating a common language with any sort of kind of momentum is the bad guys yeah everyone else is just trying to nurture their world Mm -hmm. and 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 find their audience whereas the broader picture is not about like let's all be together it's like you know you fucking babies yeah yeah so and and it's happened i i don't know how noticeable is it is to everybody Mm -hmm. and but i just i realize that whatever resistance there should be to that culturally or even comedically is is fragmented and not not really there yeah it's just people trying to do their work you know in 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 the shadow of this shit mm-hmm. well i mean anyone who's like anytime i meet someone who doesn't do comedy especially if they're older than me by however many years like the the first question they ask when they find out i'm a comedian is are you worried about what you can and can't say anymore uh, and yeah. that's how they think that, that comedy is now right, they, they right. think it's all that and and the weird thing about it seems so babyish to me really that, that, that there's the whole the main argument by a lot of people who support uh this kind of comedy that punches down a lot or whatever is that they they make out like it's a freedom of speech issue and people are trying to silence them and stop them from saying no one <laughs> is saying uh what you what you have said uh, that should be against the law and you can't and exactly. you should be thrown in prison if you can't say right it. exactly but it's like it's such so it's such a weird argument it's like if, if i went up to a stranger or even a friend and just pulled their hair really hard and hurt them yeah. and they went don't do that and i go oh what i'm gonna go to prison now for doing that you know it's, like, it, it's such a weird jump clearly what i've done is hurtful to you it hurt you it was malicious it wasn't cool but no one's threatening to throw me in prison or, or take away my right to pull people's hair. But they're allowed to ask me, do, do not do that, it hurts. And uh, it seems so bizarre to me. And that's the only reason I wrote a routine about it was, uh, to be, well, there was a number of reasons. But definitely the initial reason was like, this will be an actual comedy routine and not just something I talk about in interviews or stuff. It's yeah. because it seemed absurd their attitude to it and so therefore we can i can put it in my stand-up show yeah. because it's so uh it's just so illogical this argument that right. keeps on get, get getting put up for it and and seems because you only, funny to me but but it, and it really comes down to like who who's really threatened by this like sure. you know like it, 
to me it, it indicates a peculiar lack of intelligence mm-hmm. around what the the this sort of it's a right wing trip man mm-hmm. you know it's it's not like lenny bruce you yeah, know this yeah. like it's not moving the culture forward to sort of um to to try to create more tolerance by by diminishing the power of 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 stereotypes and names mm-hmm. i mean that was the intention of that was to get everyone on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. The intention of this is something very different, but I don't think it, they, a lot of the people that engage in it go back that far or, or, or think it through that much is what I mean. So, so like, it, the, and what you're saying is you can say whatever you want, there just might be consequences, mm-hmm. and, and you either have to live with that, or, or sadly what's happened because it's not about bringing people together anymore is that, or just talk to people that want to talk like that. Yeah, sure. And so that, by, in and of itself, empowers a sort of anti-democratic sensibility. But, and also it's hard to, so if if you're a stand-up and you are on either side of this argument or whatever, say you're on the side that we're both on and how we see things. Yeah. Having a conversation with the people who don't agree with you uh, on your podcast, inviting them on your podcast or going on their podcast. Because of the way the internet is now and algorithms and you're, you're, assisting that person's career and giving them a platform and helping them so you're not just having right so so you're you're kind of stuck between this thing of going well the only people who are going to do podcasts together or interviews together or tv shows together are people who agree with each other and i i talk to comedians i disagree with off stage about stuff and i'd be friends with people who i don't agree with and like have those conversations um, but I wouldn't necessarily go, come on a podcast with me and I'll give you that platform to say this, because then you you feel that suddenly it's not just that you're having that chat and it'll be, because there's a real opportunity there to have an interesting conversation and maybe a useful conversation and one that could be helpful and sure. could change people's minds um, because that's what a lot of us are yearning for now because it seems like, you know, we're living in this world that doesn't make any sense to us and why are people f- following this? But... Um, but you go, as soon as I have that person on, all it's going to do is boost their career and they're not going to change. And it's just going to give them more, more people these ideas. And these are very dangerous. Yeah, you're going to get beat up. And, yeah. and, 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 sure. and, they're, you know, and they're going to get excited. And then not only is it like not giving them a platform, but then you're going to have to deal with you know, who knows how much shit on social media problems and uh, platforms and for how long. Mm-hmm. And like, you, you know, I don't know how you're built for that kind of thing. I mean, like... It, you know, I've learned how to deal with that shit. If I say something, and and then I get it, you know, just like a mm-hmm. hundred, and I don't push my, I don't push it too far. Mm. But then I start to wonder. It's sort of, and and then I start to like question my own, like, and I'll talk about it on my podcast. And but you know, there is such a division of audience, yeah, that it it really has come down to this idea, like anti wokeism, and these sort of like, you know, I can say whatever I want. It's like, sure. I mean, you, you you definitely can, but it's it's almost hackneyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there, there's no risk to it, and they think they're. And I think that's why a lot of it's become appealing to to sort of like mediocre comics and and mediocre minds is that it gives you an ideology, and it also gives you an excuse for why you may not get work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's more often than not the root of it. A lot of the time, sometimes it happens with obviously there's massively successful comedians who have been doing it lately but i think it still comes from you know we've been talking a lot on this episode about our own insecurities yeah. on stage and how we feel sure. with it and not every comic acknowledges that within themselves i think every comic has it yeah 
but not every comic goes i don't think i'm good enough and so this is how that manifests on stage sometimes when i act out and i think there's a lot of comedians who don't acknowledge that in themselves will constantly convince themselves that the audience are the problem they're the idiots uh the them themselves as a comedian is completely in the right yeah. and everyone's against them yeah and they're not reflecting on themselves very much and then That's true. uh and then they say those things because uh, they go, oh, I blame this group for, or oh, blame, you know, they might do it, you know, they do a routine without thinking. Often, you know, the genesis of it, if you like, trace it back for a lot of these comedians yeah. and you find the thing that started it, it's not like a pattern. It's not something they were obsessed with. They just no. did a, they did a joke that they thought, oh, that'll be funny, but their own, right, uh, yeah, yeah, their yeah. own life experience and their own meant that they were blinkered to this, you know, this other group's, um, you know, way of you know how yeah. their their life experiences made a joke they thought would be funny then usually a you know a bunch of people will go here's why that is actually sure. quite harmful to a lot of people and then because they've got the same insecurities we do but they the don't shit. go i would go yeah oh shit yeah I, well thank you I, for okay, telling me i shouldn't have said that and i see it i'll sort that out yeah and, and it's more helpful yeah you know I, I had a routine in that show where i had the routine about transphobic comedians i also had a routine about um periods uh syncing up if oh, yeah, people so were living yeah. in the same yeah. house and originally i was very gendered with the language about that of like um you know women have periods and men don't and then uh and i didn't see the thing there and someone came up to me after the show and went hey it's nice you're doing that bit at the start, start about transphobic comedians but if you're doing that you should know this bit here where you're saying uh, you're basically saying you know women have periods and that's a definitive thing that's kind of that goes against that and doesn't really make sense and um you know i think there are some there are some people who would go fuck off like 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 like, oh what i can't do anything right i did that bit at the start and now you're giving me shit for that and nitpicking oh fuck this but but you have to kind of go because there's nothing to lose there you got no, you, know, you just have to go. Okay, cool. Balance thanks. it. Thanks. Change the language. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Still and works. St- still works. Maybe even better. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't hurt me in any way. Um, doesn't hurt anyone else. Yeah, um, I've gotten and that. That's it. It's a sensitivity thing. Yeah. And you have to sort of decide. And and you you can make the decision to be like, I'm not going to change that. And yeah. I definitely do get uh, a slightly belligerent at times. Yeah, I still possess that idea that my first reaction is like, no, fuck you. I'll get, you know. sure. And then I got to walk it back. It's just it's the same thing as you feel after you shit on a heckler. You're yeah. like, and maybe yeah. I'm just going to have to suck this up and get, you know, and let it go. Well, the main problem at the minute, I think, with this kind of stuff is um, those of us who thought we were goodies, right. who thought we were the good guys. Yeah. And then... We didn't realize that so much of, because of, you know, the world is just geared towards uh, people in privileged people. And we didn't realize it. And then we got told, actually, that behavior that you think is completely normal fucks this entire group of people. And because we see ourselves as the goodies, our first reaction, I definitely had this, yeah. is, I'm one of the good guys, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this whole thing. And then uh, I learned into, um, like the whole J.K. Rowling thing is just like if you look back on the, that timeline of her, how she got to where she is now, yeah, is basically her 
quite proudly announcing Dumbledore's gay, by the way, everybody. And then people kind of going, okay, that's a nice gesture, but the books are done. And no point is Dumbledore gay in the book, so you talk about him. So, you know, it's nice that you've told us, by yeah. the way, Dumbledore's gay, yeah. but it would have been cool if, like, the book said he was and... Uh, yeah, he could have had a boyfriend at some point, and that could have been norm- normalised and yeah. cool. Like we, w- that would have been better. Yeah. So, and then instead of kind of going, oh, okay, I hear you. She went, I'm the fucking good guy. Go fuck yourself. And it's just got to be this thing that has slowly over time, yeah, just escalated to someone who is deliberately antagonising this entire community um, because she was like, because she that she thought she did something good. But that's why now in like so many films, yeah. And very mainstream films as well. The villain in the films isn't... It used to be a cartoonish, just out-and-out baddie. Yeah. Who just wanted to be bad and wanted to upset everyone and wanted to to cause pain. But now, especially since, like, social media and looking at people differently, and a lot of the bad guys are... They all see themselves as the good guy. And that's the important... Most Marvel films... Like Thanos, who's like obviously one of the biggest you know movie villains yeah. in years, you can see it from his point of view and why he thinks that what he's doing is good. That he's not like, hey, I'm I'm the bad guy. Yeah. He's thinking interesting. Uh, this is because uh, we're starting to see that a bit more with like these people who like are causing a lot of pain. They don't think they're they think they're the victims. And, sure, like uh, it's even yeah. that Elvis movie is done yeah. from the point of view of Colonel Parker. Sure. Right, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, the most exploitive, fucking horrendous. Yeah, but it's it's most of it. It's really just his point of view, his yeah. side of the story. You know, played against you know Lerman's you know kind of brilliant depiction mm. of of the talent of a guy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, those are the two sides you've got to deal with. Yeah. All I, right, well, we're not going to solve that. Yeah, this is good talking to you, man. Yeah, you too. James A. Caster in a hotel room, talking, getting down to it. He's announcing tour dates today. You can go to jamesacaster.com for tickets and venue info. And uh, hang out for a second. I'll, I got, I'll tell you some more stuff. So listen, Brendan and I talked for about an hour. We went uh, through my entire filmography, title for title. I didn't even know I did that much. And we'll do this in the future to talk about actors and directors. But this time we went over the marinography, uh, which was engaging, kind of getting that memory working. Here's a little uh, here's a little taste of it. Let me give you a taste. Here's a bump. Have a bump of the marinography. How did this thing happen that you doing the Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone? Video? I don't know. You were you part of that? I was not. No, it just happened. Fuck, I don't even remember, but that was like a big deal. Like yeah. every, it was like it was this montage of people singing. I don't even remember which song. Like uh, a Rolling Stone. It oh was yeah, a, like a Rolling it Stone. It was a it was an interactive video. You could go to the website and switch the channels on a TV, and every channel you went to was synced up with the person with on the that song. channel doing, doing the that, song, lip syncing yeah. the song to whatever clever, moment yeah. it was at. It was a big deal. It was Kinda. you and like the like the uh, Pawn Stars and uh, uh, Drew Carey on The Price is Right. All right, maybe and- it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So if you haven't subscribed to the full Marin on WTF Plus to get all our bonus content, plus the full WTF archives, click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click WTF Plus. This week I'll be in Columbus, Ohio at the Southern Theater on Thursday, August 4th. Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm at the Old National Center on Friday, August 5th. Louisville, Kentucky at the Baumhart Theater this Saturday, August 6th. I'll be at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles on August 10th. I'll be back at Dynasty Typewriter in LA on August 14th for perhaps a TikTok crowd work show for my introduction into TikTok. Just cut it up, man. Just do quick shots. Get the kids in. Get the kids into the shows. Hey, do me, do me. That's what they say. Bust my balls. I'm here for the ball busting. Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rococo Theater on August 18th. Des Moines, Iowa at the Hoyt Sherman Place on August 19th. And Iowa City, Iowa at the Inglert Theater on August 20th. In September, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Boulder, Colorado, and Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In October, I'm in London, England, and Dublin, Ireland. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Um... I think I can take a vacation in Vancouver so I can look around, find me a place to settle down in a few years. Can you dig it? Okay, here we go.
Homer lives. Monkey in the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Cat angels. Cat angels. Cat angels. Cat angels.